We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Away we go, episode 307 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Wednesday, May 4th, 2022. It is Star Wars Day, 2022, May the 4th. May the 4th be with you. Well, the force was with our capitals on Tuesday night. How about the job by the CAPS Caps, Caps, Caps on Tuesday night. The Caps won game one of the first round Stanley Cup playoff series against the President's Trophy winning Florida Panthers. A 4-2 win at the Panthers as the Caps overcame a 2-1 third period deficit with three third period goals. What a job by the Caps on Tuesday night. Uh, Alex Ovechkin was back and was terrific. He, to me, made the play of the game. A fabulous neutral zone takeaway that led to an Evgeny Kuznetsov third period even strength game tying breakaway goal. Vitek Vanacek was the cap starting goaltender and was really good. Uh, look, it's one game, okay? We're not going to go nuts over this. The Caps need to win three more games to win the series, but hard not to be happy, really happy right now if you're a Caps fan like me. Hello and welcome to a Wednesday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. It is nice to be happy about one of our teams in Washington, D.C. sports. Coming up on the show, in-depth discussion of the Caps' big win at the Panthers on Tuesday night. Coming up next segment on the show, a special guest to talk commanders, pro football-focused lead college football analyst, Anthony Treish, who will address why the commander's taking North Carolina quarterback Sam Howell in the fifth round of the 2022 NFL Draft, was one of the steals of the draft. And Anthony will also address other items from the commander's draft. You know, the pre-draft evaluations of Sam Howell were all over the place. Anthony and Pro Football Focus as a whole are fans of Sam Howell. Not that they think that he's like guaranteed to be an all-pro quarterback, but they see upside in Sam Howell. I'm going to talk with Anthony about that upside and much more with the commanders coming up next segment. I promise you, 
you don't want to miss this. Uh, also on the show, what a win for the Nationals late night on Tuesday night. A 10-2 win at the Colorado Rockies as the Nats bats came through big time for a third time in four games on this Nats nine-game road trip out west. And Eric Fetty on Tuesday night amazingly became the first Nats starting pitcher this season to last for at least seven innings in a game. And I say amazingly because of where the game took place. You have this bad Nats starting rotation. You have the Nats on Tuesday night playing at Coors Field, which has been a house of horrors for Major League pitchers for decades. And yet that is the site of a Nats starting pitcher for the first time in the 2022 MLB regular season lasting for at least seven innings in a game. Go figure. Uh, I will talk Nats later in the show. I'll talk Orioles late in the show. Uh, They too on Tuesday night got good starting pitching. Another nice outing from Bruce Zimmerman, but the O's did lose 7-2 the final to the Minnesota Twins at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Sterling Porter CPA on the Commander's 2022 draft. Right, Sterling, a late congrats on 300 episodes. Uh, And then Sterling throws in a very nice compliment. Uh, Thank you, Sterling. Continue, Sterling. Is it me or are the commanders drafting guys with high floors and low ceilings? Remember, Don Ron (laughs) said that this was the year to take a leap. So it looks like he is going for guys who can contribute now versus guys with major upside. I like the Brian Robinson Jr. pick. I think that he can serve in a Marion Barber type role for us. Remember how the Dallas Cowboys use Barber. Also, I don't think that we are trading Deron Payne. I think we are keeping him with Fedarian Mathis and Jonathan Allen to have a good rotation and to try to make some type of a run this year with that group. I like Daniel Wise, too, to come in for spot duty. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, Well, thanks for the email, Sterling. So a few things. Uh, I agree with Sterling on the commanders drafting guys with higher floors and lower ceilings. Uh, I've talked about that. Ron Rivera very clearly used this draft to take players who can contribute right away and to take players who address current team needs. Uh, It's interesting that Sterling had Marion Barber as the comp for Brian Robinson Jr. when so many have said that Robinson was drafted to be Washington's new Peyton Barber. Uh, But the more that I think about the commander spending a third round pick on Robinson, the more that I am convinced that he was not drafted just to be the short yardage back, you know, just to be the new Peyton Barber. I talked about this on the special commander's draft show that I did for this past Sunday, episode 304. Washington last season was very good on short yardage runs. I mean, there really was no need for a new short yardage back. Antonio Gibson last season did a nice job on short yardage runs. I think that the commanders drafting Brian Robinson Jr. is more about spelling Antonio Gibson, who has been banged up a lot, although to his credit, he has not missed many games. And I think that the commanders drafting Brian Robinson Jr. may well be about challenging Antonio Gibson, who has left a good bit of yardage on the field. Uh, This past season in particular, he did not get enough of the yards that were blocked for him. The analytics back that up. Uh, And then with Deron Payne, I agree. Uh, The commanders probably are not trading Payne this offseason, even though I think that they should at least be open to trading Payne this offseason. I mean, if all that the commanders can get for him is a sixth or seventh round pick, fine, don't trade him. 
But especially if the commanders can get a second or third round pick for him, trade him, given that the commanders aren't even offering him a contract extension this offseason, according to our friend, commanders insider Ben Standig of The Athletic. Like, if you're not going to even offer the guy an extension, then you, of course, should be open to trading him this offseason. Like, if you value him that much not to trade him, then why don't you value him enough to even offer him a contract extension this offseason? I'm still trying to understand that. Uh, email from Neil Mullen, who is the official counsel of the Al Galdi podcast. Uh, Neil has a lawyer practice labor and employment law for three plus decades. He is an adjunct professor at George Mason's Law School, the Antonin Scalia Law School. I've had Neil on the podcast to discuss the many, and I mean many, legal situations involving the football team, now known as the Commanders. But Neil is a fan of the Commanders, and he has some thoughts on the Commanders 2022 draft off my conversation with NFL draft analyst Thor Nystrom, the mighty Thor of NBC Sports Edge on Monday's show, episode 305. Writes Neil, interesting to hear Thor bring down his mighty hammer <laughs> on the Washington draft. He knows way more than I ever will about player evaluation, but I could not disagree more with his approach to assessing a team's draft. Here is what I heard. I like the player, but don't like the slot. Teams don't play slots. If you like the players added to the building and the players fill needs on the roster, what difference does it make on the day after the draft how those players got there or whether Thor or Mel Kuyper Jr. thought that the pick was the right value at the time? Let me ask you this, Al. If Washington had taken Sam Howell with the pick at the end of the third round, where they took the running back, Brian Robinson Jr., and Washington took Robinson in the fifth round, where Washington took Howell, do you think the reaction would be the same? I think they'd have a parade for Martin Mayhew down Ashburn's broadest boulevard, assuming Ashburn has a boulevard. Uh, And what's the net result either way? Same dudes in the same unis. I am not going to defend the Carson Wentz deal, or the decision to use four first-round picks on the defensive line. Those decisions put the team in an uncomfortable position. But the process that the team came up with to deal with those predicaments was a plan that the team executed well. High-floor guys with room to grow who can help now. It's easy to earn an A draft grade. Agree with the draft experts. They'll love you to death. Doing what is necessary to build out the roster is harder and garners nothing but criticism. It took discipline and an absent owner to accomplish that. Where did discipline get them? A receiver with the best hands in the draft and 4-4 speed, the best running back in the SEC, the number three defensive tackle in sacks nationally who was supposed to be better versus the run, a quarterback who was supposed to be a top five pick coming into this year, and a giant tight end with ball skills. But you took them in the wrong order. (laughs) And Neil wrote that portion of the email using the Twitter technique of mixing capital letters with lowercase letters. Concludes Neil. By the way, Todd, Todd, Todd had Fedarian Mathis going 45. So was he a value pick at 47? F if I know. Uh, Thank you for the email, Neil. Well done, my friend. Uh, You make a number of good points. So... The truth about evaluating an NFL team's draft is this. What truly matters is whether the team ultimately got good players. The problem is that it takes at least two to three years before you can truly know whether an NFL team in a draft got good players. And so in the meantime, 
in this constant content world in which we live, uh, we need to have some other way of passing immediate judgment on what teams do in NFL drafts. That's the fun of the NFL draft, right? Passing immediate and definitive judgment, right? Uh, And so something that can be judged right away is whether a team got good value out of a given selection, given where the player selected had been expected to go or had been perceived to be likely to go. And I do think that that is a worthwhile conversation to have. That said, where a player is supposed to go is subjective. That is true. I mean, heck, Fidarian Mathis's own agent told Mathis to expect to go in the third or fourth round. Uh, the commanders took him in the second round. Now, maybe Mathis's agent was trying to temper expectations when he told Mathis expect to go in the third or fourth round, or maybe that's what the agent truly believed, okay? And the commanders overdrafted Mathis. I mean, it's worth pointing out that Washington in the 2021 draft, at least right now, appears to have overdrafted Jamin Davis. That was a belief at the time of the draft, and his bad rookie season only added further credibility to the belief that Washington overdrafted Jamin Davis in taking him with the number 19 overall pick in the 2021 draft. Now, hopefully, Jamin is a lot better this coming season. I'm certainly rooting for him to be a lot better this coming season. But as things stand right now, okay, that was not a good first-round pick. Washington did overdraft Jamin Davis. Uh, Also, Washington in the 2021 draft did something that I still think was not good. The team traded for a six-round pick that the team used on a long snapper. The Cheeseman, Cameron Cheeseman. Washington on day three of the 2021 draft traded a 2022 fifth round pick to the Philadelphia Eagles for one of their 2021 sixth round picks and one of the Eagles 2021 seventh round picks. And Washington with the team's sixth round pick in the 2021 draft acquired by the trade with the Eagles took the Michigan long snapper Cameron Cheeseman. And look, Cheeseman was fine this past season, but that's not the point. To me, you never spend a draft pick on a long snapper. You find your long snapper in free agency or on the waiver wire, and you especially don't trade for a pick that you end up using on a long snapper. So Cheeseman, to me, was overdrafted by Washington in the 2021 draft. So it's not unreasonable to wonder if the commanders in the 2022 draft were guilty of overdrafting some guys. But to Neil's overall point, no doubt. If these supposedly overdrafted players like Fedarian Mathis and Brian Robinson Jr. end up being good players for the commanders, nobody will care where those guys were drafted, including ESPN NFL draft analyst Todd McShay, a.k.a. Todd, 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 Todd. Yes, maybe the single greatest bid that comedian Frank Caliendo ever did for ESPN. Him doing ESPN NFL draft analyst Mel Kuyper Jr. and saying, Todd, 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 Todd. Yeah, I can never hear that enough, man. I can never hear that enough. You know, I actually worked with Frank Caliendo years ago before he really became famous. Uh, when I was a punk kid, In my early 20s, I was a producer at what was then Sports Talk 980 in Washington, D.C., and I produced the show that Andy Polin and Steve Zabin did, The Sports Reporters, and Caliendo used to come on once a week and do his impressions. Uh, This is like 2003, I want to say, so before he hit it big time 
with Fox and ESPN. And uh, Caliendo actually got really mad at me at one point because Caliendo would get paid for his appearances. He got paid some absurd amount, like hundreds of dollars for like a five-minute segment. Uh, and I would submit invoices for him to get paid. And at one point, he swore that I had shorted him on money. And I hadn't shorted him on money. I mean, this wasn't my money, you know? I was a young punk kid just trying to make it to the business. Like, what was I trying to do? Short Frank Caliendo on his money, right? And I showed my work. I was like, no, uh, this is what I submitted. This is what you've done. And he, he, he was not having it. And he got really angry. And eventually, our program director at the time got involved. And then Caliendo realized that he was wrong. And, you know, everything ended up being fine. But I was quite proud of myself. That as a punk kid in my early 20s, I stood up to the man who eventually became the great Frank Caliendo. But yeah, uh, Caliendo, when it comes to impressions, is tremendous. There's no doubt about that. Uh, Also tremendous is the real estate agent you need if you're trying to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area right now. Kellen Hunt. If you are on the hunt for a new home, contact Kellen Hunt. Visit closeitwithkel.com. Dot com. That's closeitwithkell, K-E-L-L dot com. And book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs. And make sure that you tell Kell that Al Galdi sent you. You know, it can be confusing if you're trying to buy a home right now. Uh, interest rates are soaring. Homes in the D.C. area are expensive. The competition for homes in the D.C. area can be fierce. That's why if you're looking to buy a home in the D.C. area, you should go with Kellen Hunt As your real estate agent, uh, Kellen Hunt will guide you through the process of buying a home that's right for you. Kellen Hunt understands the market. He is here for you to listen to what you want, no matter what your situation in life is. Uh, Whether you are a first-time buyer looking for guidance, or you have a young family looking for a bigger home, or you're ready to retire and or are looking to downsize, Kellen Hunt can help you. Kellen Hunt is a real estate agent for real people. And he himself is a real person. He's a father, a husband, and a homeowner himself. He's smart and creative. Kellen Hunt gets it. And Kel is willing to put a portion of his commission back in your pocket. Yes, you, the buyer, get a piece of the action. Kellen Hunt knows what buyers like you are facing, and he wants to help. So visit closeitwithkel.com. That's closeitwithkel, K-E-L-L.com, and book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs. Make sure that you tell Kel that Al Galdi sent you. You have nothing to lose. Go to closeitwithkel.com. Book an introductory call with Kellen Hunt at closeitwithkel.com. If you're trying to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area, you will do well by going with Kel. Visit closeitwithkel.com and tell Kel that Al Galdi sent you. As is always the case, I appreciate you listening to this podcast. Uh, If you have never rated the podcast, please consider doing that. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can give the podcast a five-star rating. Uh, Also, if you have never written a review of the podcast, please consider doing that. You can write a review of the podcast if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. Uh, The review does not have to be long. It can be just a sentence or two saying, that you like the podcast. The ratings and the reviews help to make the podcast successful, and I thank you for doing them. Well, few words in the language of the NFL draft are as appealing as steal. You always want it to be that your NFL team pulled off a steal 
in an NFL draft. You always love to hear that a pick that your team made might be the steal of the draft. Uh, The Commanders taking North Carolina quarterback Sam Howell in the fifth round of the 2022 NFL draft has been called a steal. In fact, Pro Football Focus has called the Commanders taking Howell in the fifth round one of the biggest steals of day three of the 2022 draft. And joining us right now is the man who called the Commanders taking Howell in the fifth round, one of the biggest deals of day three of the 2022 draft. Pro Football Focus lead college football analyst, Anthony Treach. You can follow Anthony on Twitter at PFF underscore Anthony. And Anthony's going to talk Sam Howell and a lot more about the Commanders 2022 draft. Anthony, it's nice to have you back on the podcast. How are you? I'm doing well. I, you know, I was just trying to get you know caught up on all 32 NFL teams' drafts. You know, getting a little bit of rest mixed in there, but I'm ready to see these guys get into action. I'm ready for the 2022 season to get you know really to get rolling because some of these guys kind of landed in interesting spots, and I'm curious to see which of these quarterbacks, which you know unexpectedly split uh, slid you know all throughout the draft, um, which ones kind of get you know a little bit of run early. You know, is anyone going to see the field? That's the big question mark there. So I'm excited for the season. Yeah, it is wild what happened with the quarterbacks in the 2022 draft. So I'm interested in what you make of Sam Howell as a quarterback. I guess let's just start with this. We know that very few non-first-round quarterbacks become franchise NFL quarterbacks. In your opinion, is there a realistic path by which Sam Howell could become a franchise NFL quarterback? I do think that there is a chance. You know, it, it was quite puzzling why he went in the fifth round. I was expecting him to go in the second round, as was, I think, everybody else, um, really across the NFL landscape. And it kind of seems like all of these teams, you know, that are kind of needing a quarterback kind of got caught up in a game of chicken. You know what I mean? It just seemed like they were waiting for that one domino to fall. And I think if it's interesting to even think about if Carolina takes a quarterback at six, I think that changes everything. I don't think we see this big slide that happened that nobody could have expected to happen. Um, and I think Sam Howell would come off the board a lot sooner than the fifth round. Um, so I was, I'm shocked. And, and, you know, compared to past drafts, I mean, we're a year removed from, you know, eight quarterbacks going in the top 70. And this year we only had one. I mean, Kyle Trask, um, former Florida Gator, now Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Kellen Mond coming from Texas A&M. He went to Minnesota, Davis Mills from Stanford to Houston. Those three guys, they were picked near the end of the second round, beginning of the third round last year. And compared to everybody else in this class, they're lesser prospects. Right. And so that was just kind of shocking to me. Um, and I think Washington got pretty good value there, just considering, you know, Howell's potential. You know, he's going to take time to develop in the NFL, just coming from the offense that we, he was in, because it was very, you know, it was the definition of ecology type of offense. Right. It's a lot of run pass options, not a lot of, you know, true drop back game in there. You're not having a lot of NFL complex passing concepts, not having those difficult reads to make. And it's just a lot of, you know, like simplistic RPOs, a lot of go balls down the sideline. And this past year in particular, when he lost all of his supporting tasks to the NFL, um, both starting wide receivers and both running backs, I mean, he was alone out there. He just really had one quality wide receiver. So, you know, if the play broke, I mean, he just kind of took off with his legs. And it was schoolyard-esque with the way he played the game of football. So it's going to be a completely different ball game at the NFL level. And that's a big turnoff for teams. And I think that's the big reason why Sam Howell, was the last of the quarterbacks to go and kind of slid there. I was kind of in Matt, Matt Corral ended up being the fourth one off the board. Um, and I think that was just a little bit of Carolina, you know, getting a little nervous and wanting their guy. I don't think if they, if they didn't take him, I think we're probably talking about him in the same ballpark as Sam Howell was for those same reasons, you know, not having, you know, the, the coaches not wanting to really coach these guys and prop them up. 
to play into their system because it's going to be difficult. But with Sam Howe in particular, why I think he is a steal, why I do think that he still has upside um, down the road is he just has, I think, some of the – he has NFL requisite arm talent. There's no doubt about it. I mean, when you look at you know some of the deep balls he consistently threw at North Carolina, I mean, heck, he actually led this draft class in career big-time throws with 86. I mean, the production that he laid out as a true freshman, sophomore, and junior, it, it's something that we really don't see you know, a lot in here at PFF. So, I mean, he has that ability. Um, and, you know, he does have that, you know, gamer mentality, right? I mean, we saw that, you know, for the reasons I outlined earlier, just this past season when he's not a dynamic athlete, he's not Malik Willis with his legs, um, but he made up for it. I mean, he still grinded out every single yard he could possibly get there. Um, and I think he's, he has more than enough the accuracy. He has the strength there. Um, and, you know, so I do think the tools are there to develop into something. It's just kind of the in-between-the-ears aspect, which, again, is still the most important aspect of the position that he's going to have to develop on. So I'm not so sure it's going to be something we'll see, you know, reap benefits of this year, but it could be a couple of years down the road. So I definitely am not ruling him out. I would be – this is probably the, the day three pick, of, you know, considering, you know, the last few years out of all the day three quarterbacks that we've seen go, I, there's no one even close to the talent level of Sam Howell. I'm betting on anybody, it's Sam Howell here. So – it's just kind of crazy that Washington got a quarterback of this caliber with his talent, his tools, this late in the draft. So, you know, I think it's something that could definitely pay off down the road. All right. It's good to hear that. Uh, now, of course, a knock on Sam Howell is that he had a disappointing 2021 junior season off a great 2020 sophomore season. What's interesting to me, though, is that as you dig deeper on his 2021 season, it doesn't seem to be as bad as some people think, especially considering that North Carolina lost a lot of offensive weapons from 2020 to 2021. But for instance, Howell's overall grade per pro football focus for the 2020 season was 92.3. His overall grade per PFF for the 2021 season was 91.1. Not that much of a difference. Uh, Am I right in saying that Howell's 2021 season wasn't as bad as it has been made out to be? Yeah, it really wasn't. I mean, from a production perspective, it was pretty solid. You know, North Carolina was one of the more disappointing teams in college football. They had much higher expectations than um, ended up happening in the end. But, you know, just considering the situation around them, and it did it did show it was a good thing for Sam Howell, in a sense, you know, just kind of making the most of that situation with some of the plays that he was forced to make. Um, but at the same time, it kind of showed the things he has to work on because he's got to be a little bit more patient. And, you know, a lot of times... You know, the first option wasn't there. I mean, he was pretty quick just to drop the eyes and go try and take off with the ball and run. And that led to, you know, a lot of sacks, a lot of tackles or close to the line of scrimmage he was trying to take off, um, you know, inviting in pressure unnecessarily um, and just kind of showing that's an issue. And that's something that you can't really do at the NFL level and he's going to have to clean up. You know, you need to keep those. If you are under pressure, you, you know, you, you can't take off and run. You still got to keep those eyes downfield and look for the play. And that's not something he really did. Um, but, you know, again, he still made the most of the situation. I mean, finishing as high as he did from a rushing perspective, you know, he's right there with Malik Willis. You know, they're not even on, on the same you know planet there as far as, you know, athletic ability. But Sam Howell still had dang near the same um, type of rushing numbers in terms of explosive runs and broken tackles. I mean, he has pretty thick build there and he could, uh, you know, really shrug off guys um, pretty easily. So, you know, there were the, the situation around him. It helped him, but it also hurt him a lot. And, you know, I think if he would have come out last year, 
it would have been pretty interesting to see. Well, he wasn't able to, obviously, with being a, uh, an underclassman still, um, just two years of experience at North Carolina at the time. But if he would have been eligible, it would have been pretty interesting to see where he would have ended up. Um, I think it would have been fairly high. And, you know, I, I think kind of just the whole narrative of this class as a whole helped or, or hurt him quite a bit, right? And, you know, it was just kind of the worst case scenario happened with him um, just because of the flaws there. And it's going to take a lot of coaching. There's no doubt about it. He's nowhere near close to being an NFL-ready quarterback. Um, I mean, you know, a lot of these quarterbacks in this class really aren't. So I think that's just the big concern with them. But from a production perspective, all things considered with that situation, I'm not sure if you put a lot of other quarterbacks in this class or, you know, just really in college football in general in his situation running that offense with that supporting cast, I'm not sure if they're going to do, you know, significantly better. I'm not sure if you're plugging in any other quarterback in that system, then all of a sudden North Carolina becomes a contender, right? I mean, Sam Howell did just about as good as he possibly could. He did hurt himself sometimes, but a lot of times it was a result of, you know, the, the system around him kind of failing. We're talking Commander's Draft with Pro Football Focus lead college football analyst Anthony Treesh. So your final 2022 NFL Draft Top 100 Big Board had Sam Howell as the QB3 in the draft and notably had Kenny Pickett as the QB5 in the draft. Of course, the Commanders took Sam Howell at pick number 144. The Pittsburgh Steelers took Kenny Pickett at pick number 20. Uh, just out of curiosity, why did you have Howell two spots ahead of Pickett? Yeah, I mean, it's more of a respect to Howell's talent. And I just have some pretty serious concerns with the way Kenny Pickett plays the game and how that's really going to translate. Now, he probably ended up in the best situation of any of these quarterbacks in the draft. Um, you know, the the offensive skill position weapons that he's going to have at his disposal, it's, it's off the charts. And then the Steelers continuously you know, did well throughout the draft, adding George Pickens, the big physical wideout from Georgia that has true X potential, if healthy, Calvin Austin, who is going to be a little bit of a, you know, a gadget weapon from Memphis. He's an undersized player, but I mean, he's just an electric athlete. Um, you know, he's going to add some value there on just kind of scheme touches, but with Kenny Pickett in particular, it's just with the way he plays, it's a lot of, you know, he's holds onto the ball for a very, very long time very slow to process, right? When in doubt, he's holding onto the ball and he's drifting out from the pocket. He doesn't mind, he doesn't care to invite in pressure. And then he just kind of waits for the, the, the offense to open up something for him. You know, his average time to throw this past year was 3.19 seconds, which would have been the slowest in the NFL this past season. But at the collegiate level, you know, he, he had some formidable, formidable opponents. But when you're playing UMass, Georgia Tech, you know, some other teams like that, it's a little bit easy to get away with that play style, right? Because you're going to find somebody if you just keep holding on the ball. And he had a very good offensive line in front of him. So with the way, you know, I, I mentioned a little bit ago, the quarterback position is still in between the ears. And I have some pretty serious doubts that Kenny Pickett can all of a sudden fix um, his processing speed and become a quick and decisive decision maker because he's never been a quick and decisive decision maker. And that's not an easy fix there. The, the offense around him can help him a little bit with – with schemed throws, but you know, when, when he's going to be down and he's going to be down at the NFL level, he's, he's going to have to try and put on the Superman cape and try to lead Pittsburgh back at some point. I think I would be pretty concerned with that um, at the NFL level. I, I, that, that's just the biggest concern with me. 
Um, you know, hopefully he proves me wrong and the situation can definitely help him. He's, he's definitely an advantage over any other rookie quarterback. Um, but again, I just have some serious doubts there and that's why I didn't think of him anywhere close to a first round player. And I, I wouldn't, I'm not a fan of Pittsburgh taking him there at 20. I would have went in other directions if I were there. One more on Sam Howell. It has been said that the usage of run pass options in North Carolina's offense makes it difficult to evaluate how Howell will translate to the NFL. Uh, We obviously do see RPOs in the NFL. Could it be that we're going to see more and more RPOs in the NFL and that a quarterback like Howell coming from an offense in which RPOs were used a good bit won't have to make as much of a transition as he would have had to make in the past? Or is the nature of the RPO such that you can only do it so often in the NFL? Yeah, I mean, and it's a little bit more easier to get away with RPOs at a higher rate at the collegiate level, just considering the, the offensive lineman downfield rules, right? I mean, you could have multiple yards, um, you know, leeway there at the collegiate level for offensive linemen to block downfield. But at the NFL level, you don't have that. And I think, and then that's when you risk penalties and it's just a little bit more difficult to get away with um, and that's why you don't really see him. And it, it's a little bit more difficult to get the defenses with those. You know, someone like Washington, um, you know, they ran an RPO, I think about 15, 16 percent of the time last year. That's still, I think, 25 percent lower than what Sam Howell had last year at North Carolina. And that's not including all the other schemed throws that were in that, that UNC system, because there were not a lot of pure passing concepts that, he, that Sam Howell is going to be forced into at the NFL level. And that's with any of the 32 offenses. Right? I mean, you're not going to get that type of system. And, you know, one, one of my colleagues, Seth Molina, um, he made a very good point about this. We talked about this when we were doing the, the PFF live show um, on day three of the draft. And I asked him, you know, do you think, you know, some of these college type of offenses, because I, I know for a fact NFL coaches get really upset with some of these college offenses, right? Because it's very difficult to evaluate these quarterbacks. And I was talking with an NFL defensive coordinator at the NFL scouting combine about this. And he went on a rant for about 10 or 15 minutes about these offenses and how difficult and how it's just, it's, it's just kind of fake. It's not real. It's not helping these guys reach their full potential. And, you know, Seth made a good point. We're just kind of counteracting that. And it's like, well, just, just coach them up, do your job and coach them up. And, you know, it's just kind of like the NFL would prefer colleges to, Go back, you know, go to the NFL type of system, get away from all this innovation, do what NFL teams do. But colleges are going to get down that innovation path because they want all the advantages in the world. You know, try to take advantage of talent when you got them um, and, you know, really prop up some of these guys and make it easier for them. Because at the end of the day, they still are developing new players. You know, they're young, they're in college. You know, they may not have the, you know, the football IQ as some of these NFL vets do. Um, and it does give them an advantage. So it's definitely interesting. And I think it's kind of trending in opposite directions. Um, of course, NFL teams are still innovating, but they can only do so much in that sense. Um, they can't get away with a lot of stuff that, you know, college is getting. All right, let's get to some non-Sam Howell draft picks by the Commanders. A criticism of the Commanders' 2022 draft has been that they reached on each of their first three picks. Penn State receiver Jahan Dodson in the first round, Alabama interior defensive lineman Fedarian Mathis in the second round, and Alabama running back Brian Robinson Jr. in the third round. Do you see things that way, that the Commanders overdrafted those three guys? Yeah, I, I do think they did overdraft them, but I do think it's it's a little bit different. I do think with Jahan Dotson, I'm not as 
you know, harsh on them for that one. I think Jahan Dotson was a first round talent. I know in the PFF consensus board there, um, led there by PFF draft analyst, lead draft analyst, uh, Mike Ritter. He was 56. I thought of Jahan Dotson as a more talented player than that. I thought he was a first round guy. And, you know, the biggest things you want at the wide receiver position, got to get open, got to catch the ball. And Jahan Dotson can do that. I mean, he's a very, he's a fantastic separator and his ball skills are off the charts. I mean, that is his trump card at the position. I mean, I think that's going to translate to the NFL. So I'm not as, you know, a down on them on that pick. I think the other two, I definitely am, though. Fedarian Mathis, I think he's just, I think he's a safe player. He's definitely a safe player. He has a high floor. He has NFL-ready technique, but he doesn't have the traits to be anything spectacular down the road, right? And I think at that point in the draft, you know, that was a little bit of a reach there. Um, you could see that all throughout his collegiate career at Alabama. He's, he was never a game wrecker. You know, someone like that came from Alabama and cheered against the Lennon Christian Barmore a few years ago. I mean, that guy was a game wrecker. He could single-handedly take over games and help Alabama's defense shut down the offense. But Arian Mathis was, was just a consistent, you know, quality player. He wasn't going to mess up a lot, but he wasn't going to win the game for you. And I think that could translate to the NFL. But again, it was just a little bit too early there. Um, with Brian Robinson Jr., um, I definitely would have gone other directions at the running back position. And I, I think this year's running back class is splitting hairs in a sense where I thought the difference between running back three and running back 10 was so, so marginal. It was just really depending on what you value at the position and what your current running back room looks like. Um, and for someone like Brian Robinson, I think he's going to bring, you know, he's going to bring the physicality. I mean, he was one of the most physical backs in college football. Um, went at, at Alabama. Um, but sitting there at round three, pick 98, um, I wouldn't have gone that direction. I think he still has so much to work on. Um, you know, he can be an impactful, you know, short yardage guy. But, you know, the, considering the other running backs that were still on the board, someone like Damian Pierce from Florida that ended up going on day three, um, as probably one guy I would have looked at. I think he's more of an all around guy. But again, it's just dependent on what you value the position and what your coaches really want in a committee approach, because with the way the game's transitioning, you're not getting those bell cow backs anymore. It's a committee approach, and it's just going to continue to get down that path. The commanders initially had the number 11 overall pick in the 2022 draft, traded down with the New Orleans Saints, and got back a package that included the number 16 overall pick. The commanders then used that pick on the Penn State receiver, Jahan Dodson. Uh, I won't bore you with the details, but the commanders essentially turned those other picks that the team got back from the Saints into three players. Alabama running back Brian Robinson Jr., North Carolina quarterback Sam Howell, and Nevada tight end Cole Turner. Should the commanders have just stayed at 11 and taken, say, Ohio State receiver Chris Olave or Alabama receiver Jamison Williams, or are the commanders better off with this package of four prospects with which the team wound up? I guess what I'm asking is, if you're the commanders, would you have been better off just staying at 11 and taking Olave or Williams, or are you in fact better off having turned that number 11 overall pick into these four players, Jahan Dodson, Brian Robinson Jr., Sam Howell, and Cole Turner? I mean, considering Sam House, the fifth-round guy, um, definitely that situation, getting thoughts in there, just, you know, considering I thought Sam Howell was a second-round type of player, um, I think that single-handedly changes it. Now, if they go a different direction, um, maybe they get another, you know, quarterback there, um, then it's probably a different scenario. Um, but I think Howell single-handedly um, elevates that, that move 
it helps that trade look far better um, for Washington, um, just given his upside and everything that I outlined earlier. Now, you know, Jameson Williams or Chris Olave, they would have been great, you know, additions to that offense. But I do think considering Washington's quarterback situation, they needed somebody. And, you know, I would rather have Dotson and Hal plus, you know, Robinson Turner um, over someone like Williams and Olave, just given Hal's upside and the shakiness, you know, with Carson Wentz and, you know, the, the, all the question marks, the rightful question marks around his play. So I think getting Hal is the big reason for that. If it would have been any other player, you know, on day three, then it probably would have been a different, you know, answer. <laughs> do you have any hope for Carson Wentz with the commanders or do you not think that Wentz with the commanders is going to work out? Yeah, I, I think best case, you're probably looking at just being a, a middling team, um, you know, just maybe on the cusp of the playoffs, but probably not going to get there. Similar to the Indianapolis Colts this past year that were very, very close there with the you know, heartbreaking loss to Jacksonville for the final week of the year to miss out on the playoffs. I mean, that's just kind of who Carson Wentz is. And, you know, he could, he's, um, yeah, I think he's one of the more unique quarterbacks with the way he can turn it on and off because when he's on, you can get a stellar performance, but when he's off, it's, it's bad. It's really, really bad. And, you know, I, some of the top performances from this past season, I mean, Carson Wentz against the Houston Texans and it was earlier on in the season, um, he lit him up. I mean, it was one of the highest grading performances we've ever seen. I think it was around 94, 95 single game PFF grade. Granted, it was the Houston Texans, but still it was one of the best we saw all year long. And, you know, that throw against the Arizona Cardinals at the end of the game, you know, on the run in the end zone touchdown. I mean, it was a, that was one of the best plays I saw, um, too, from this past season. But at the same time, I can remember a lot of Carson Wentz just flat out bad moments, um, that really hurt the Indianapolis Colts. So it's just, you're not going to get a lot of stability there. It's going to be a lot of volatility. That's how it was, you know, with him when he was a Philadelphia Eagle, and that's how it was with him in Indy. So I would expect probably the same type of person wins, and it's going to be a little bit of a roller coaster. So, you know, I'm not expecting too much. Yeah, I know that you are not alone in that opinion. Uh, Pro Football Focus lead college football analyst Anthony Treesh. Uh, Anthony, thanks so much for your time, man. All the best to you. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. All right, up next, a full breakdown of a great night for the Capitals on Tuesday night. Their 4-2 win at the President's Trophy-winning Florida Panthers in Game 1 of a first-round series in the Stanley Cup playoffs, including a look at a play from Alex Ovechkin that joins the list of the many legendary plays that Ovi has made in his career. We're talking Caps after this. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. 
Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, as we discussed on the podcast on Monday's show, episode 305, and on Tuesday's show with Smokin' Al Koken of NBC Sports Washington, episode 306, uh, the Capitals series against the Florida Panthers in the first round of the 2022 Stanley Cup playoffs is not a great matchup for our Caps. Uh, the Panthers in the regular season won the President's Trophy with an NHL leading 122 points. Uh, the Caps, meantime, are the lowest seed in the Eastern Conference this postseason. They are the second wildcard team in the Eastern Conference. Uh, the Panthers in the regular season scored an NHL best 337 goals, uh, which works out to 4.11 goals per game. The Caps, meantime, have dealt with goaltending problems this entire season. But as we also pointed out, upsets in the Stanley Cup playoffs happen quite a bit. And so the notion that the Caps had, like, no chance in this series was ridiculous. And while we still have a long way to go in the series, the Caps now have gotten off to an excellent start in the series. The Caps on Tuesday night won at the Panthers, 4-2 in game one of the series. The Caps have stolen. They have ripped away home ice advantage from the Panthers in this series. And it's not even just that. The Caps on Tuesday night rallied to win. The Caps overcame a 2-1 third period deficit as they won the third period 3-0. Understand the significance of this. The President's Trophy winning Panthers in the 2021-2022 NHL regular season did not lose a single game in regulation when leading after two periods, going an NHL best 39-0-1 in that situation. And yet, the Caps on Tuesday night overcame a 2-1 third period deficit to win at the Panthers. Just outstanding. Uh, before we get to the particulars of this Caps win, I do want to acknowledge this. The Caps on Tuesday night looked really good. They looked quick. They looked prepared. They played with passion. This was a much different Caps team than the Caps team that we saw during the oh-so-lackluster 1-3-2 and two finish to the Caps' regular season. Here was Caps head coach Peter Laviolette during his post-game press conference on Tuesday night. Um, we liked the game we were playing the whole night, and um, we just felt like if we stuck to it and stuck with it, um, you know, played good defense, that the offensive chances would, would keep coming, and that eventually we could crack them. Yeah, and the Caps did crack them. Uh, the Caps did crack the Panthers. Uh, keep in mind who the Panthers' starting goaltender is. Sergei Bobrovsky, a.k.a. Bobo. Uh, now, Bobo on Tuesday night wasn't terrible. He did make some nice saves, but he ultimately stopped 34 of the 37 shots on goal that he faced. Sergei Bobrovsky does not have a great postseason track record. Uh, Bobrovsky entered this series with the following career stats in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Goals against average of 3.24. That's not that good. Uh, save percentage of just 8.99. That's not good. Record of just 13-23. and 23. You don't need me to tell you that that is not good. Uh, Sergei Bobrovsky has not been a great postseason goaltender. 
The Caps, in their run to the Stanley Cup title in 2018, beat Sergei Bobrovsky and the Columbus Blue Jackets in the first round. The Caps got to Bobo in that series, and the Caps got to Bobo on Tuesday night. Uh, the Caps scored three third-period goals, the first of which was by Evgeny Kuznetsov. He scored an even-strength goal 8-14 into the third period on a wrister in the low slot on a beautiful one-on-none breakaway, which was created by a huge takeaway by Alex Ovechkin. And let's talk about Ovechkin. Let's talk about the grade eight. Uh, Alex Ovechkin on Tuesday night played off having missed the final three games of the Caps' regular season due to an upper body injury. Uh, But Ovechkin on Tuesday night looked just fine. Uh, He had a primary assist. He had four shots on goal. He had a game-high nine shot attempts. And he had four hits. And Ovechkin's primary assist to me was the play of the game. Uh, Ovechkin in the neutral zone poked the puck away from Mackenzie Wieger, leading to the one-on-none breakaway and even strength goal for Evgeny Kuznetsov. This was some play by Ovechkin, a defensive play by Ovechkin. Peter Laviolette during his postgame press conference on Tuesday night on the takeaway by Alex Ovechkin in the neutral zone. Well, I think... Um I, th- I think the neutral zone is a really important zone. There's times when we don't play it so well and, and you let up too many chances. It's like the gateway to your end or, you know, it's the gateway to the offensive zone. And so you got to make sure that you take care of it. And, um, you know, it was just he was he was in position and structure, made a nice play, and you know, we were able to get some jump behind it with another player. Yes, you were. Uh, the Caps' second goal in their three-goal third period on Tuesday night came from T.J. Oshie. Uh, Oshie scored an even-strength goal 10-37 into the third period on a tip-in shot in the low slot off an outstanding pass from Nicholas Backstrom from beyond the top of the left circle to a streaking Oshie in the low slot. I mentioned the Caps looking quick on Tuesday night. The Caps played fast on Tuesday night. This play was a prime example of that. T.J. Oshie used his speed to get all by his lonesome in the low slot in front of Sergei Bobrovsky, Uh, but a tremendous pass by Nicholas Backstrom. Peter Laviolette during his postgame press conference on Tuesday night on Nicholas Backstrom. Yeah, he was, I thought he was really good. I thought a lot of guys were really good, but um, that play was was on point, you know. He he found oceans. That's a that's a Nick Backstrom touch right there to get it to him. Yeah, no doubt. And then the Caps' third goal in their three-goal third period on Tuesday night was a Lars Eller even-strength empty net goal, nineteen eleven into the third period. Uh, the Caps on Tuesday night went one for three on the power play. So the Caps got a power play goal that came from Tom Wilson, who scored a power play goal three forty-seven. Into the first period, Wilson scored from the low slot on a rebound of an Anthony Mantha one-timer from beyond the right circle. Now, Tom Wilson did get hurt in this game. He left the game with a lower body injury, so that is something to be worried about with the Caps. But what was, to me, the biggest worry with the Caps coming into this series, their goaltending, ended up being a strength on Tuesday night. Vitek Vanacek, was the cap starting goaltender. Peter Laviolette made the announcement earlier in the day, and Vanacek on Tuesday night came through. He stopped 30 of the 32 shots on goal that he faced. I mean, you realistically could not have asked for much more from Vitek Vanacek on Tuesday night. Uh, Also, the Caps did a very good job of minimizing the number of high-danger shots on goal 
that Vanacek faced. Uh, Vanacek, for natural stat trick, faced just four high-danger shots on goal the entire game. Uh, Vanacek, for natural stat trick, stopped three of the four high-danger shots on goal that he faced. He stopped all six of the medium-danger shots on goal that he faced, and he stopped 17 of the 18 low-danger shots on goal that he faced. So how about that? Vanacek, per natural stat trick, faced just four high-danger shots on goal versus 18 low-danger shots on goal. That's a credit to the defense that was in front of Vitek Vanacek. Peter Laviolette during his post-game press conference on Tuesday night on the Caps' defense in front of Vanacek. Yeah, I mean, they're they're a good team. You know, you can, they're they got a lot of they got a lot of weapons, and they come at you in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, just some things I thought were smart. We're smart with puck decisions, smart in the offensive zone. I thought we competed competed really hard in the defensive zone. So there were some good things that we did defensively. Yeah, so Vitek Vanacek on Tuesday night did give up the two goals. Uh, he gave up an even strength goal to Sam Bennett, seventeen fifty five into the first period. And this was a bad goal that was allowed by Vanacek. Bennett scored on a wrister from the high slot with Vanacek not at all being screened. So that was your classic low danger shot on goal. And Vanacek didn't make the save. Bennett shot the puck between two caps defensemen, Dmitry Orlov and Nick Jensen. Orlov and Jensen seemed to be expecting Bennett to pass the puck. They just kind of like stood there seemingly uh, while Bennett got off the shot. And then the other goal that Vanacek allowed on Tuesday night, an even trend goal by Claude Giroux, just 43 seconds into the second period. Giroux scored on a backhanded rebound shot off a slap shot by Panthers defenseman Brandon Montour from the top of the right circle. Uh, now Vanacek made the save on the Montour shot, but the puck went right to Giroux as he was skating through the left circle. Uh, the entire sequence started thanks to Giroux beating Evgeny Kuznetsov in a face-off in the left circle of the Cavs defensive zone, but Kuznetsov in the game did go six and five on faceoffs. Kuznetsov historically is not good at all on faceoffs. He actually uh, wasn't bad on Tuesday night, but he did lose that draw that led to the Claude Giroux even Trent goal early in the second period. But overall, very good performance on Tuesday night by Vitek Vanacek. Peter Laviolette during his postgame press conference on Tuesday night on Vanacek. Yeah, Vitek was he was really good. You know, they they caught one off the post, and then you know another one. You know, there's things that we could have done better in in front of him. Um, you know, with regard to that, but I thought he played a solid game. Yeah, the Caps on Tuesday night, two for two on the penalty kill. Uh, the game was incredibly physical. The Caps had 43 hits. The Panthers had 56 hits, so a combined 99 hits. In this game on Tuesday night, uh, Anthony Mantha had a game-high 10 hits, also had a primary assist, and Mantha, per natural stat trick, was number two on the Caps in five-on-five shot attempt percentage for the game at 60.61. Uh, the Caps with Mantha on the ice in five-on-five situations in the game had 20 shot attempts versus allowing 13 shot attempts. Uh, Mantha did commit a second-period slashing penalty, but he overall was very good on Tuesday night. Uh, in terms of the overall puck possession battle, the Caps for natural stat trick had 42 five-on-five shot attempts to the Panthers' 48, but the Caps finished with 38 shots on goal to the Panthers' 32. The puck possession battle is going to be tough for the Caps in this series. The Panthers finished the regular season at number one in the NHL in five-on-five shot attempt percentage at 56.5. But if you're a Caps fan like me, it is impossible not to be thrilled off what we saw on Tuesday night. The Caps lead the Panthers in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs 1-0. 
Game two for the Caps at the Panthers, Thursday night at 7.30. All right, great night for the Capitals on Tuesday night. Great night for the Nationals on Tuesday night. And it was so funny to me what went down with the Nats. There is no venue in sports that has doomed a single position more than Coors Field in Denver, Colorado, has doomed pitchers. Uh, Coors Field, for decades, has been a house of horrors for pitchers, mainly due to the mile-high altitude. And so it makes zero sense, and thus perfect sense, that the first time in the 2022 Major League Baseball regular season that a Nats starting pitcher lasted for at least seven innings in a game happened at Coors Field. The Nats on Tuesday night won at the Colorado Rockies, 10-2 in Game 1 of a three-game series. The Nats now on their nine-game road trip are 3-1. and one. The Nats now this season are 9-16 and 16 overall, but 6-5 and five on the road versus 3-11 and 11 at home. How about that? The Nats have actually been road warriors so far this season. And Eric Fetty on Tuesday night was terrific. For the first time this season, we can say that a Nats starting pitcher truly was terrific. Fetty allowed one run in seven innings, becoming the first Nats starting pitcher to complete at least seven innings in a game in the 2022 regular season. Yes, that finally has happened, and it happened at Coors Field, of all places. Uh, Fetty on Tuesday night gave up six hits, a double and five singles. He issued two walks. He recorded three strikeouts. He threw 102 pitches, 66 strikes versus 36 balls. He retired 13 of the final 15 batters he faced. Uh, just a tremendous job by Eric Fetty. You know, Fetty over five starts in this 2022 regular season does have an ERA of 468. Uh, that obviously isn't very good, but Fetty has been decent, if not good, in four of the five starts, the ERA is skewed by a blow-up start. Uh, Fetty got rocked a couple of starts ago now. An 11-2 loss to the Arizona Diamondbacks at Nationals Park on April 20th. Fetty in that game allowed seven runs, six earned in three into third innings. But you look at the other four Eric Fetty starts so far this regular season. 4-2 win over the New York Mets at Nationals Park on April 10th. Fetty allowed two runs in five innings, had five strikeouts. A 7-2 win at the Pittsburgh Pirates on April 15th. Fetty allowed two runs in five innings, had six strikeouts. A 2-1 loss to the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park last Wednesday night. Fetty allowed two runs in four and two-thirds innings, but he had five strikeouts. And now, what he did at the Rockies on Tuesday night. Uh, truth be told, Eric Fetty has been the Nats' second-best starting pitcher so far this season. Josiah Gray is number one. Eric Fetty is number two. Now, I know that's not exactly saying a lot, given how bad the Nats' starting pitching has been. But so far, I think Eric Fetty's actually been pretty good for the Nats in this regular season. We shall see a ways to go. Remember, Fetty last season got off to a good start and then unraveled. Fetty in the 2021 regular season over his first 10 starts, ERA at 333. But Fetty finished the 2021 regular season with an ERA of 547. Uh, but Eric Fetty in the Nats 10-2 win at the Rockies on Tuesday night was really good. And so too was the Nats offense. A Nats offense that had been so bad, all of a sudden is so good. Uh, for a third time in four games on this road trip, 
the Nats offense was really good. The Nats on Tuesday night scored 10 runs, totaled 16 hits, worked three walks, went five for 13 with runners in scoring position. By the way, this game incredibly took just two hours, 39 minutes. All of this offense, and yet the game was played in well under three hours. I couldn't get over that. Uh, But we on Tuesday night had another big game for Josh Bell. Uh, He was the Nats starting first baseman. He was back as the number three batter. His Nats manager, Davey Martinez, was back to having Bell in the three spot and Nelson Cruz in the four spot. Bell on Tuesday night, three for five with a three-run homer and two leadoff singles. Uh, Bell in the Nats three-run third smashed a one-out three-run opposite field homer to left field for a 3-0 Nats lead. Bell in the Nats two-run seventh had a leadoff single up the middle. Bell in the Nats one-run ninth had a leadoff broken bat single up the middle on a 1-2 pitch. Uh, Josh Bell now this season has an OPS of 1,013. He has been the Nats' best hitter this season. Uh, The Nats' best hitter overall, of course, big picture, is Juan Soto. And Soto on Tuesday night homered. Soto was the Nats' starting right fielder and number two batter. Went one for five, but the one was a solo homer. Uh, Soto in the Nats' three-run fifth had a first pitch leadoff opposite field homer to left center field for a 5-1 Nats lead. Uh, The homer was some shot when it projected 414 feet per stat cast. Now, also with Juan Soto on Tuesday night was something that I hope we never see again, okay? Juan Soto tried to bunt on Tuesday night. Uh, You don't do that if you're Juan Soto. And that was not a bunt that was called for by Davey Martinez. Juan Soto did this on his own. Um, No, you don't do that, okay? Because even if you bunt for a hit, the opposing team has won. Because the opposing team has gotten the great Juan Soto to not swing and to instead bunt. But top of the third, runners on first and second and no outs. That's the other thing. Yet ducks on the pond, as the saying goes. And Soto tried to bunt down the third baseline. Now he fouled off the pitch, ended up striking out on six pitches. But, uh, you know, Soto has a high baseball IQ. <laughs> I, I did not like what he was thinking in that spot. You don't bunt when you're as good of a hitter as Juan Soto is. Uh, Yadiel Hernandez right now is uh, hitting almost like he's Juan Soto. Hernandez on Tuesday night, another good game. He was an ad starting left fielder and number five batter. Three for five with a two-run double and two singles. Top of the second had a leadoff opposite field single to left center field. In the Nats, three-run fifth, he had a two-out single up the middle. And in the Nats, two-run seventh, Yadiel Hernandez, a two-run double to deep center field on an 0-2 pitch for a 9-1 Nats lead. Yadiel Hernandez now in the 2022 regular season, 62 plate appearances, an OPS of 921. He is forcing his way into being the Nats every game left fielder. Uh, K-Bet Ruiz on Tuesday night was good. He was a Nats starting catcher and number seven batter, three for four with a double, a two-run single, an RBI single, and a walk. So he got on base four times. A Ruiz in the top of the second drew a two-out four-pitch walk. Ruiz in the Nats one-run fourth had a double to the right center field gap. Ruiz in the Nats three-run fifth had a two-out two-run single to center field on a one-two pitch for a 7-1 Nats lead, and Ruiz in the Nats one-run ninth, a two-out first pitch RBI bloop single to center field for a 10-2 Nats lead. A nice game for K. Bear Ruiz. Michael Franco on Tuesday night was good. He was a Nats starting third baseman and number six batter. Two for four with a double, a single, and a walk. Franco in the Nats one-run fourth, a leadoff single to center field. Franco in the Nats three-run fifth, a two-out first pitch double down the left field line, and Franco in the Nats one-run ninth, 
drew a two-out, four-pitch walk. So many guys got in on the act on Tuesday night. Cesar Hernandez on Tuesday night got on base three times. He was an ad-starting second baseman and number one batter, one for three with a single, a walk, a hit-by-pitch, and a stolen base. Hernandez in the top of the first drew a leadoff five-pitch walk and had a stolen base. Hernandez in the Nats' three-run third drew a hit-by-pitch. Hernandez in the top of the six had a one-out first pitch, opposite field single to right field. Also, Alcides Escobar on Tuesday night had two hits, and Alcides Escobar on Tuesday night hit like he hit for the Nats last season. Uh, Alcides Escobar has not been good so far this season, as we've discussed. He was surprisingly productive for the Nats last season, and one of the things he did so well last season was author what I like to call garbage hits, okay? He would be down in counts, he would be in two-strike counts, and he would put the ball in play. And, you know, he didn't always make supreme contact with the baseball, but he did just enough to get the hit, did just enough to turn the plate appearance into a productive plate appearance. And sure enough, Alcides Escobar on Tuesday night as an at starting shortstop and number nine batter, two for four, with two singles. Uh, He and the Nats, three-run third, had a leadoff single up the middle, and he and the top of the fourth had a vintage Alcides Escobar garbage hit. A one-out, broken bat, opposite field single to shallow right field on an 0-2 pitch. If you're wondering what does an Alcides Escobar garbage hit truly look like, that single in the top of the fourth on Tuesday night, vintage Alcides Escobar. Again, One out, broken bat, opposite field single to shallow right field on an 0-2 pitch. Like every box was checked in terms of whether that hit was a garbage hit by Alcides Escobar. Uh, Nelson Cruz would be the exception to the Nats hitting on Tuesday night. Uh, The rut for Nelson Cruz to begin this season continues. He was an Nats starting DH and cleanup batter. He went 0 for 3, and he actually got hinch hit for by Lane Thomas in the top of the seventh with a man on first and no outs. Uh, Lane ended up delivering a pinch first pitch single to left field in what ended up being a two-run seventh for the Nats. Now, in the moment, it looked like Davey Martinez was pinch hitting for Nelson Cruz because he has been struggling. Well, Davey, during his postgame session with reporters, did say that Cruz left the game due to a stiff back. So that explains why Lane Thomas pinch hit for Nelson Cruz, that also might explain why Cruz has been so bad so far this season. You know, maybe he is hurting, uh, but Nelson Cruz has been bad so far this season. Uh, Cruz in this 2022 regular season has an OPS of just 442. That is atrocious. An OPS on base percentage plus slugging percentage of just 442. Nelson Cruz usually is slugging well above 442. His OPS so far this season is just 442. Got to get Nelson Cruz going, but you know, there is a concern that maybe we're just seeing Nelson Cruz age here. You know, this is his age 41 season. He has been a great hitter for years. He's not going to be great forever, and uh, maybe the greatness is coming to an end. I hope not, but uh, that thought does cross your mind as he continues to struggle this season. Uh, Because Eric Fetty was so good on Tuesday night, Davey Martinez only used two relief pitchers. Uh, Boy, have we not seen that with any kind of frequency so far this Nats season. Uh, Erasmo Ramirez in the bottom of the eighth gave up a two-out solo homer to C.J. Crone. Paolo Espino tossed a perfect bottom of the ninth on just six pitches. Game two for the Nats at the Rockies is on Wednesday night at 8.40. Patrick Corbin will be the Nats' starting pitcher. Now, given Corbin's struggles over these last few years, you'd say, well, Corbin at Coors Field 
that's a recipe for disaster, and maybe that is a recipe for disaster, but after what Eric Fetty did on Tuesday night, I don't know what to expect from old Corby on Wednesday night. I'm proud of the boys. Yes, Davey, you should be proud of your boys. Very good win at the Rockies on Tuesday night. Well, we on Tuesday night had an increasingly familiar scenario for the Orioles this season. Good starting pitching, but bad offense and a loss for the O's. Uh, The O's on Tuesday night lost to the Minnesota Twins at Oriole Park at Camden Yards 7-2 in Game 2 of a four-game series. The O's this season now are just 8-16. But once again, an Orioles starting pitcher did well. Uh, Bruce Zimmerman on Tuesday night allowed two runs in five innings. Uh, He gave up four hits, two doubles, and two singles. He issued two walks and two hit-by-pitches, but he recorded four strikeouts. He threw 81 pitches, 52 strikes, versus 29 balls. Uh, Zimmerman, in this 2022 regular season, now has made five starts. He has totaled just 24 into third innings, but he has an ERA of 148, and he has a strikeouts per nine innings of 9.25. He's averaging more than a strikeout per inning, 25 strikeouts, over 24 into third innings. I mean, Zimmerman overall has been quite good. Uh, The Orioles offense, however, has not been good. And the Orioles offense on Tuesday night, unfortunately, again, was not good. Uh, Just two runs, just seven hits, two doubles, and five singles, just one walk. Uh, The O's went just one for seven with runners in scoring position. And the Orioles bullpen faltered. Uh, Joey Crable and Keegan Aiken combined to allow five runs in three innings. Uh, this was Orioles manager Brandon Hyde during his postgame press conference on Tuesday night on Bruce Zimmerman. Yeah, I thought Bruce threw the ball well. I mean, he got a couple, you know, the the, the walk and the hit by pitch was unfortunate. Um, it, it was through five innings and went, gave up two runs. So, I mean, he did he did his job. Um, would have liked him to see him go a little deeper, but it's the way it goes. Um, and our bullpen's been really good up until this point, and Joey Crable's been outstanding, and he just left a bad pitch for a three-run homer. But we need to do a better job offensively to help out our pitching staff. It's not, it's not easy to pitch in 1-1, 2-1 games every single night. No, it's not easy to do that. Uh, the O's on Tuesday night did get back Trey Mancini. Uh, he returned from a three-game absence caused by bruised ribs. Uh, Mancini has the Orioles starting DH and number two batter. Had a one-out infield single in the bottom of the first despite having been down to the count at 1.02 and had a game-tying RBI single in the bottom of the fifth on an 0-2 pitch to tie the game at two. So good to see Mancini get himself a couple of singles, but Mancini in this 2022 regular season has not been good. Uh, Mancini has an OPS of just 609. Uh, game three for the O's against the Twins at Oriole Park at Camden Yards is on Wednesday night at 7.05. Very juicy pitching matchup. Uh, Kyle Bradish, who is the Orioles' number 10 prospect for MLB Pipeline and who did a really nice job in his major league debut this past Friday night in a 3-1 loss to the Boston Red Sox at Oriole Park at Camden Yards versus a former Oriole, Dylan Bundy. And keep this in mind, the O's got Bradish from the Los Angeles Angels in the trade of Bundy to the Angels in December 2019. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Thursday show, episode 308, will feature 
Plenty more on the Commanders. Also talk Nationals and Orioles. Game two for the Nats at the Colorado Rockies is on Wednesday night at 8.40. Game three for the O's against the Minnesota Twins at Oriole Park at Camden Yards is on Wednesday night at 7.05. Have a great rest of your Wednesday, and I'll talk to you on Thursday. Yeah, Todd, she does some Todd, certain Todd, things, Todd, the- Todd, 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 Todd.